It's Monday, December 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Scientists have created a new, more powerful technique to edit genes. While most people may be familiar with CRISPR, this new method is called prime editing, and it offers more precise gene cuts with less errors. Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET, joins us for more on this new gene editing technique that could enable treatment for approximately 89% of genetic mutations that cause disease. Next, something very exciting as we talk to a 2019 Nobel Prize winner. Earlier in the year, Dr. Greg Semenza and two others received the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their work on how cells sense and adapt to oxygen availability. Because of their discoveries, there have been advancements that led to anemia and cancer drugs. Dr. Semenza, professor of genetic medicine at Johns Hopkins University and 2019 Nobel laureate, joins us to explain his work, how he reacted when he got that call notifying him he had won, and the high school teacher that inspired his love of science and discovery. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So if prime editors can go in and edit the DNA of a patient with sickle cell disease and refine that tiny little change, that one genetic mutation, one DNA letter, you can actually essentially cure sickle cell anemia. And that's sort of been, in essence, a holy grail of medicine for a long time. Joining us now is Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET. Thanks for joining us, Jackson. Thanks so much for having me. So scientists have created a new, more powerful technique to edit genes. Right now, the one that a lot of people might be familiar with is CRISPR-Cas9. And the other one is called base editing. But there's this new technique, it's called prime editing, that researchers at Harvard have unveiled. And this one seems to be a lot more precise, it's less error prone. Jackson, tell us a little bit about this. This is a really exciting development for gene editing in general. Now, I guess to really distill it down to its basic level, a base editor can change the letters of DNA and CRISPR-Cas9 can do the same thing. But prime editors have a really unique ability to find and replace entire swathes of DNA and do it without creating errors. And that's the biggest key and the biggest change over CRISPR and base editing is that there's such a low error rate. And really at the moment, what's preventing this technology from being used in human therapeutics to treat genetic disease is the fact that the error rate is just too high for us at the moment. But the exciting part is if we are able to refine it and get it to work as we want it to, it could enable treatment for approximately 89% of human genetic mutations that cause disease. So it could really be a huge game changer. This is game changing in that being able to bring that error rate down is really what's hampering CRISPR specifically from being sort of used in a human therapeutics. And I use the example of sickle cell anemia, which is something that Lou's lab did in this new paper. Sickle cell anemia affects your blood cells. So your blood cells take on a sickle shape and they actually become really sticky and they can't carry oxygen around the body as well. And in that disease, it's actually only a very tiny genetic mutation that causes it. So if prime editors can go in and edit the DNA of a patient with sickle cell disease, and refine that tiny little change, that one genetic mutation, one DNA letter, you can actually essentially cure sickle cell anemia. And that's sort of been, in essence, a holy grail of medicine for a long time to be able to go in, change one base, one DNA letter in your genetic code and essentially cure a disease. 
the CRISPR versus the new tool, the prime editing. And part of it is you're saying that we can edit one single part of the gene. Traditionally, the CRISPR tool would cut across, basically. It would cut across both strands of the DNA. And this new style, we can just make the exact edits that we need. So CRISPR is often referred to as molecular scissors. It comes in, it cuts the DNA strand, it cuts both strands. And basically to edit the gene then, what happens is the body's natural system repairs that break. So depending on how it repairs the break, sometimes you'll get the edit that you want and sometimes you won't, you'll get something even weirder. So that's why CRISPR's sort of error rate is much higher because when those scissors come in and cut the DNA, they don't just cut the target that you want, sometimes they'll actually cut DNA far away from your target site as well. CRISPR has been around for seven years and it's continually being refined. We're using different enzymes to make better cuts. We're making different complexes so that you can paste different letters into the gap that it creates with a little bit more efficiency. But it's not necessarily that it's old or that it's old hat anymore. It will still be used because it's so, so incredibly powerful. But prime editing, it doesn't cut both strands of the DNA. Instead, it actually kind of creates this this little flap of extra DNA, and that is what gives it really high precision. But also, basically what it has to do is perform this secret handshake. So you and I, if we were, if we were handshaking now, we might do a fist bump, we go into a quick grab, and then we hit each other's elbows or something. <laughs> Essentially, with CRISPR, it's a single handshake. It's just nice to meet you sort of thing, and that's what happens with the DNA and CRISPR. But with prime editors, they kind of have to do this secret three-step handshake. And with a three-step handshake, there's more opportunity to stuff it up and be like, hang on, you got the handshake wrong, so I'm not going to let you cut here. This is not really ready yet for use in humans or anything like that. Obviously, you said it's a kind of a proof of concepts thing still. But one of the big problems is that these prime editors are pretty large in molecular terms, so they don't, won't work everywhere just yet. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's something that they raised in the Nature paper from Monday. Basically, so far, they've been able to get up to 44 base pairs, so 44 DNA letters they were able to insert into a genome, and they were able to delete up to about 80 letters. So that's still quite big in molecular terms. And actually delivering that prime editor and the changes you want to make into the cell is very, very difficult as it gets bigger and bigger. Of course, something like, say, if you're using like Advil or aspirin, these molecules are really tiny, so they can get in and alter the cell. But with these big complexes, it becomes much more difficult for them to just slide into a cell. You actually have to sort of deliver them in a way that basically punctures them through the cell wall. And, and at the moment, some of those ways that are being used is, for instance, David Lou's lab used viruses. So you can attach the complex to a virus and get the virus basically to deliver it into the cell and get to the DNA where you want to make that edit. And how successful have they been with this? So what they did in the paper is they took human cell lines, so four different human cell lines and mouse neuronal cells. This is something that scientists use all around the world for various different purposes. With the cell lines, they corrected sickle cell anemia and they corrected Tay-Sachs disease, which is, I believe, a disease of the spinal cord or of the brain. And basically, the success rate or the efficiency of cutting is anywhere between 20 and 70%. So this isn't perfect, but it also doesn't necessarily have to be. You don't have to get 100% DNA editing, DNA cuts for it to be a successful treatment, for instance. For something like sickle cell, what actually happens for a patient is... If I've got sickle cell anemia, I'll actually have my blood drawn. It'll be taken out of my body and then edited in the lab. And then what will happen is that blood will be 
put back into my system with the edits. And actually, that is how you can start to treat sickle cell anemia. And indeed, with CRISPR, this has already started to happen in the US. So there's been a couple of patients that have already undergone this treatment. Off the top of my head, I don't have any sort of results for it, but I know that it's definitely started this year. So prime editors just essentially, if they can bump up how successful that gene editing is, it could be pretty big for something like sickle cell anemia, where the changes that you have to make are very minimal. Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar. Greg is the 28th Nobel laureate associated with Johns Hopkins, a prestigious list that gives great pride to our entire community. And we know, Greg, that though this honor is a profound, indeed a momentous one for you, that you will be right back in the lab tomorrow, if not later this afternoon, to continue doing the work that you have done for decades in order to advance knowledge that serves humanity. Joining us now is Dr. Greg Semenza, professor of genetic medicine at Johns Hopkins University and 2019 Nobel Prize winning scientist for physiology or medicine. Dr. Semenza, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. They just announced the Nobel Prize in Medicine. It was awarded to you and two other scientists for your work on how cells adapt to oxygen availability. For those of us that aren't as scientifically inclined, can you help us understand what your work was? Every cell in your body requires a constant supply of oxygen, and that oxygen is used to make energy that powers every cell and keeps you alive. And the system that we identified basically ensures that every cell gets as much oxygen it needs every minute of every day. And how did you get involved into specifically this area of research? We were studying the gene for a hormone called erythropoietin. You may know it as EPO. It's the hormone that controls red blood cell production. And of course, red blood cells carry oxygen to the tissue. And when oxygen availability decreases, there are cells in the kidney that sense the decrease in oxygen, which we call hypoxia, and they increase their production of EPO. And EPO is secreted into the bloodstream and goes to the bone marrow where the red blood cell progenitors are located and stimulates the red cell progenitors to divide. That increases the number of red cells, increases the delivery of oxygen. So it's a beautiful system that maintains oxygen delivery in a normal, healthy individual. And what we're interested in trying to understand is, well, exactly how do those cells sense oxygen and then increase the expression of the erythropoietin gene to make more EPO and to set into motion an increase in red blood cell production? And because of these discoveries that you made, there's new drugs on the horizon, things that could help with cancer, things that could help with anemia. How does that all work out? So I mentioned that EPO is normally made in the kidney. Individuals with uh, chronic renal failure, for example, who are on dialysis because their kidneys don't work, they also stop making EPO. And as a result, they're anemic. And that used to require red blood cell transfusions that would put the patients at risk for disorders like uh, AIDS or hepatitis. Then when EPO was cloned, it was possible to make EPO in the laboratory, and then this protein could be injected into the patients, and then their bone marrow would make red blood cells without any transfusion. So that was a real advance, 
but it does require injection of this recombinant protein, which is expensive to make, and some individuals develop antibodies against the protein because it's not quite the natural protein that's made by the body, and some individuals have some cardiovascular side effects from taking EPO. So the system that we discovered started out with a transcription factor, which is a protein that turns genes on, and we called that protein hypoxia-inducible factor 1, or HIF1, because when cells are deprived of oxygen, they make lots of this protein, and it turns on the expression of hundreds of genes, one of which is EPO. And it turned out, and this was a discovery that were, was made by uh, Peter Radcliffe and Bill Kalin, who are the other um, Nobel laureates this year with me, they discovered the, the, the mechanism by which the levels of HIF-1 change according to the oxygen level. And it's really neat because what happens is there's an enzyme that actually inserts oxygen atoms into HIF-1. And when those oxygen atoms get inserted into HIF-1, the protein can now be um, broken down and destroyed. So as long as you have lots of oxygen, you destroy HIF-1 and you don't turn on all these genes like EPO. But if there's not enough oxygen, then that doesn't happen. And now the HIF-1 protein can accumulate to high levels and turn on lots of genes. Why that's important from the point of view of drug treatment is that, as I mentioned, there's an enzyme that puts these oxygen atoms into the HIF-1 protein. And that enzyme, its activity can be blocked by a drug. And so several companies have developed drugs that effectively can block that enzyme. So as far as the cells are concerned, it's as if there's hypoxia because HIF-1 is accumulating and more EPO can be made and that can increase red blood cell production. And the benefit of these new treatments is that they can be taken as a pill. And there are now over 25,000 patients in advanced clinical trials for these agents. So I think we'll oh, know great. in a year or two whether they're effective and can be used as a substitute for EPO. With the way this science works and, and development of drugs, I mean, this takes many, many years. When did the majority of your research and discovery take place? So we first discovered the part of the EPO gene that was important for the response to hypoxia. And then having that piece of DNA, we found the transcription factor HIF-1 that binds to it. Then we were able to actually isolate the DNA sequences that code for the HIF-1 protein. And it turns out there's two subunits that we call alpha and beta. So we worked out the sequences for those. And that was in 1995. And that was really important because that kind of gave us tools that we could use for molecular analyses to look at the involvement of this system in whatever disease process they study. So 1995, we identified the DNA sequences for HIF-1. By 2000, 2000, 2001, Bill and Peter had identified the, the fact that these oxygen atoms are inserted into the HIF-1-alpha protein by these enzymes that are called prolyl hydroxylases. So those were the really kind of key discoveries. And then, as I said, as soon as those enzymes were discovered, it was immediately apparent how they might be blocked by small molecule drugs. And so the drug development started really right away at that time. And then went through the usual progression of showing that you can turn on the epigene in cells, then showing it you can turn it on in animals, then showing that the drugs are safe in patients and that they increase EPO levels. And then finally, these very, very large trials to show that the drugs are effective. Dr. Semenza, I want to talk a little bit about winning the Nobel Prize. For a lot of people, that is 
probably the pinnacle of achievement, obviously beyond making the discovery and it helping people and all that. But the acknowledgement of winning the Nobel Prize is something that few people really experience. Tell us a little bit how you feel about that. And then also, please talk about your high school teacher, which I've seen in a number of stories about you, how Dr. Rose Nelson really gave you this kind of zest for science and discovery. I guess I could start with the phone call that came at 3.43 a.m. on Monday morning. So the phone was ringing out in the hall, and I was in a very deep sleep. My wife was in a very deep sleep, and I eventually woke up, made my way to the phone, but by the time I got there, the phone had stopped ringing. So I said, hmm. Do you and know? Course, do you know that? Of course, I knew what day it was. Okay, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're. Yeah, I knew what day it was, <laughs> but I, you know, I said, "Oh, I wonder if this is somebody's idea of a bad joke." And uh, so I went back to bed, and it was actually quite some time. I thought it might have been five or ten minutes. My wife thought it may have been half an hour, and then the phone rang again. And I was a little quicker to the phone this time. And Thomas Perlman from the Nobel Committee told me I had won the prize, and. It was funny because, you know, I was half awake and then he's telling me this incredible news and I was just so dazed <laughs> that I was mute. Right. <laughs> and I, I, the conversation was very one-sided. He apologized for waking me up. I said, oh, that's quite all right. But, yeah, with uh, news I'm like sure that, it's, it's quite all right, I guess, for sure. <laughs> so I don't know, but they, they're afraid that I won't be able to give a lecture based on my uh, telephone conversation <laughs> skills. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so it was uh, yeah, it was quite, awesome. a, it was quite a surprise. I don't think too many people expect that right, to right. get that call. So there's nothing that quite prepares you for it. And and your high school teacher Rose Nelson, because this is an important part. Right. You so know, she had predicted it. Yeah. She had predicted that moment 45 years ago. Oh wow, um, that's great. Not me personally. So first of all, you know, she was very unusual for a high school teacher because she had a PhD and had actually been trained in research. She had done a postdoc in a lab, uh, a very famous lab called Woods Hole on uh, Cape Cod. So she didn't just teach us the facts of biology. She told us who made the discoveries, how they made the discoveries, how exciting those discoveries were, how they changed biology, and just gave us this sense of wonder about biology and the living world. And then she would say to us things like, and I want you to remember when you win your Nobel Prize <laughs> that you learned this here in our class. And she would say these kinds of things frequently. And she was just a giant. She was less than five feet tall, always had a beatific smile on her face. She had a jar of jelly beans on her desk in the front of the room. And if someone gave a particularly eloquent answer to one of her questions, she would beckon them to come up to the room uh, <laughs> and dispense several of these jelly beans as a reward. So it just had an indelible impact on me yeah. and really set my career in motion. And uh, that's great. Yeah, it's my great regret that she passed away and wasn't able to enjoy this with me. But, you know, I've gotten an incredible amount of feedback from folks in my high school who I haven't heard from in 40 years, just echoing my thoughts and saying that that's the way I felt too. Well, Dr. Semenza, congratulations and thank you for all your research, all the work that you and, and your colleagues have all done. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from it in the very near future. Dr. Greg Semenza, Professor of Genetic Medicine at Johns Hopkins University and 2019 Nobel Laureate. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation with you. Take care.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.